Welcome to the first season of Murder and 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder and 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. Marjorie Deal was a gifted musician and academically very bright. Old black and white photos show her with long, dark hair that highlighted her cheekbones, bright eyes, and beautiful smile. But behind that smile lurked mental illness that grew severe over time. Marge was bipolar, and those who knew her would describe her as a magnetic personality. She could light up a room with her intense energy, but for many, that intensity was too much. Details of her early relationships are sparse, but over time, she became a black widow and left a trail of suspicious deaths among her romantic partners. Fox News reported that one apparently hung himself. Then there was her boyfriend, Robert Thomas, who in 1984, she shot multiple times while he slept on the couch. She was charged with his murder and her bond set at $250,000, but four months later it was revoked when she was caught attempting to arrange the death of two witnesses to stop them from testifying at her trial. Authorities descended on her small home and discovered how far her mental health had deteriorated. She had become a hoarder. Her house was literally stuffed to the rafters in the attic with food, including over 700 pounds of cheese, 400 pounds of butter, moldy bread, and 400 cans of food. At her trial four years later, she testified that she had killed Robert in self-defense and claimed that she had been a victim of physical and sexual abuse and was acquitted in 1988. Then, it was her husband Richard Armstrong in 1992. He apparently stumbled and hit his head on a coffee table and died. The next one? Well, we're getting to that part. Marge's father, Harold Deal, had accumulated around $1.8 million in his lifetime, money that she was counting on inheriting as his only child. Court records indicated that in 2000 he drew up a will and left the bulk of his estate to charities, friends, and relatives. To Marge, he left only $100,000. Then he began giving away the remainder of his money, $5,000 checks to anyone and everyone, $50,000 to one person, $100,000 to another. Marge was angry. They argued, then stopped speaking and drifted apart. But that wasn't the end of it. In the summer of 2003, Marge decided she had to stop her father before all his money was gone. Marge lived in Erie, Pennsylvania, a small city located north of Philadelphia on the edge of Lake Erie. It contained a lot of characters. Many of them were her ex-boyfriends, which, by the way, she had a lot. First, she reached out to her old fishing buddy Kenneth Barnes to hire him to kill her father. Ken was also a convicted drug dealer. His fee was $200,000 with half up front. Marge didn't have the money, but she would get it. She contacted her ex-boyfriend, William Rothstein. Bill was brilliant but eccentric, 
a former shop teacher who tinkered with mechanical things and electronics. He and Marge had been engaged years ago, but had broken it off, and in the past five years, he tried to avoid her when he could. But then she reached out to him with a plan, and the trio devised a plot to rob a bank, specifically the PNC Bank on Peach Street. Floyd Stockton was Bill's roommate and mechanically inclined as well and became involved, but Floyd had a violent streak. Then there was Brian Wells, who was described by neighbors as quiet, perhaps a little naive. He lived in a little white house alone with his cats. His life was uncomplicated. He'd worked at the same pizza restaurant for the last ten years. He knew a local prostitute, Jessica Hoopsick, who knew Ken through his drug deals, and she introduced Brian to Ken. Bill and Marge were the masterminds behind the plot. Bill was working on assembling the bomb, and Marge provided him with the egg timers. Ken provided some magazine articles on making bombs. Their design was a collar to fit around a neck. It contained two six-inch pipe bombs loaded with powder from shotgun shells and plenty of live and fake trip wires. They also manufactured a one-shot shotgun disguised as a walking cane. And Brian? He would be the one to wear the bomb. Two weeks before the robbery was scheduled to take place, Marge feared her live-in boyfriend James Roden might tell police about their plan, and she couldn't take that chance. She grabbed a shotgun and blasted him dead with two shots to the chest. Then she called Bill to help her get rid of his body. Wrapped in a plastic sheet, Bill took the body to his house. But he was worried it would start to smell, so he bought a freezer and hoisted the dead weight, still wrapped in plastic, up and over the side, and dropped it down and closed the lid. The day before the robbery, Marge, Bill, Ken, and Brian met to go over their plans for the next day. Around 1.30 p.m. on August 28th, Bill used a payphone at a garage to call Mamma Mia's Pizzeria, where Brian worked, and ordered two pizzas to be delivered and gave a fictitious address. Brian loaded the pizzas into his car and drove off. The address was in a rural area where a gravel road leads to a transmission tower. Bill lived near the entrance of the gravel road. The Republican and Herald described what happened next. Marge and Ken drove to the gas station and parked nearby, waiting for Brian's green metro to drive by so they could follow him. When Brian stopped on the gravel road, he was met by Marge, Ken, and Bill. They ate a few slices of pizza, then Floyd showed up with the bomb. But Brian, who thought the bomb would be fake, now realized it was real, and refused to put it on and started to run. Ken caught up with him, just as Bill pulled out a gun and fired a warning shot. Marge and Bill held Brian down. Then Marge and Floyd attached the bomb around his neck and locked it. The homemade bomb resembled a large metal handcuff that circled his neck and hung against his chest. The lock contained four keyholes and a three-digit combination dial. Over top of the bomb, a second t-shirt was placed on Brian, one with the guest's logo. Perhaps a taunting message for police. The walking cane shotgun was placed in his car 
along with eight pages of very detailed instructions. People Magazine published the instructions, neatly handwritten in ink, mostly lowercase, but occasionally all capitals to emphasize certain points. The first two pages were for Brian, instructions that included items like, you were to go to the PNC Bank at Summit Town Center, give the following demand notes to the receptionist or bank manager, get required money and deliver to a specified location by following notes that you will collect as you race against time. Do not delay. You have 55 minutes until detonation. It ended with, act now, think later, or you will die. He was instructed to proceed into the bank and demand $250,000 and put it in a black garbage bag. Then he was to begin the scavenger hunt to find the notes and keys to disarm the bomb. The next page had instructions for the bank to deliver one of the following amounts, depending on their available funds. Plan A was for $150,000. This amount would only prevent the bomb, but they would retaliate. Plan B was for $250,000 and would prevent both the bomb and retaliation. The next page instructed the bank manager to go to the vault now and to not use any ink bombs, tracking, locating devices, or security measures. The next page listed repeated threats of retaliation and instructed them to not contact police or the press. It stated, We have followed your customers and employees' home. We know where your families live. The next page instructed police to stand down and stated, Interrupting his progress in any way will use up his delivery time and get him killed. The bomb cannot be disarmed. The next page contained more instructions and a map where Brian was to drive to find the notes and keys that would save his life. The last page listed five rules, including that he must drive 60 miles per hour throughout the course. Brian followed their instructions. He drove to the bank and strode in with the bomb hanging around his neck and carrying the walking cane. He waited his turn in line, then walked up to the bank teller and demanded $250,000. She told him that she didn't have that much, and instead gathered almost $9,000 from three different teller drawers and placed it in a bag and handed it to Brian. Marge and Ken were across from the bank, watching everything with binoculars. Brian calmly left the bank, sucking on a lollipop and carrying the cane and black plastic bag but someone at the bank had pressed the silent alarm, and at 2.38 p.m., a witness had also called 911. Police happened to be nearby and responded quickly. Brian walked to his car in the parking lot next door and got in. He started to drive but didn't get far before a street trooper pulled him over. Marge and Ken fled. Soon, local TV crews arrived. Looks like no one was following the instructions. Brian was pulled from his car and handcuffed. He told them a bomb with a timer had been strapped to his chest by four black men that he didn't know, a lie to throw them off track. He said it was going to explode if they didn't follow the instructions. Police with their guns drawn placed Brian on the pavement. He sat with his legs crossed in front of him and his hands in cuffs behind his back. When police began to remove the guest t-shirt, they saw the bomb. It was real. 
They called the bomb squad and waited. Television cameras were rolling and Brian could be heard telling police, I don't have much time. It's going to go off. I'm not lying. He asked why they weren't helping him to remove the bomb. Traffic was busy and the bomb squad was two miles away when Brian heard a beeping sound. It was approximately 3.18 p.m. It had only been 40 minutes since the robbery. He still had 50 minutes to go, according to the instructions. Right? Nope. Dead wrong. He squirmed, inching his body backwards, as if trying to escape the bomb. The beeping sped up, and within seconds, the bomb exploded. He fell backwards onto the pavement. Brian was dead at 46. Police immediately searched his car and discovered the cane shotgun and the written instructions. They searched his house and gathered handwriting samples and other items, but did not find anything to indicate that the bomb had been built at his home. Investigators also searched the dirt road where the bomb had been placed on him and interviewed Bill as he lived nearby, but he offered no insight as to what happened. Five days later, the FBI released photos of the bomb in hopes that someone might recognize it and call their tip line. Experts at their office in Quantico, Virginia, were reconstructing the bomb and analyzing the instructions found in Brian's car. Meanwhile, Marge had asked Bill to destroy the shotgun she'd used to kill James, so he melted it down and scattered pieces around Erie. He returned to Marge's and got rid of the bed and flooring and painted the room. The two discussed getting rid of the body, and she suggests cutting it up and purchased a nice grinder. She pressured him to dismember the body, and although he wanted to help her out, he felt uneasy. Things had gotten out of control. Bill contacted police and told them about the body in his freezer, and that Marge had offered him $2,000 to clean up her place, get rid of the gun, and remove the body. The interesting thing is that Bill offered up to police that this had nothing to do with Brian's death. Police found that odd, but thought perhaps he mentioned it because they'd questioned him earlier. But when they asked him if he'd used the payphone at the gas station, he admitted that he may have used it to call Brian on the day he died. James' body was frozen solid and would take time to thaw out before an autopsy could be done, but x-rays showed what appeared to be shotgun pellets. Marge was arrested. She tried to point the finger at Bill, but she was charged with homicide, aggravated assault, tampering with evidence and abuse of a corpse. On September 25th, the FBI released a photo of Brian's shotgun cane and said that it was made from metal and wood and appeared to be homemade. They offered a $50,000 reward for information on who had made the bomb or cane and who had put the bomb on Brian. FBI had named the case the Collar Bomb, but the public often referred to it as the Pizza Bomber. Two weeks later, Bill was charged with abuse of a corpse, evidence tampering, and conspiracy charges for helping Marge hide James's body. Three months after Brian's death, the Indiana Gazette reported that FBI behavior analysis had determined that the person responsible for the bombing was so frugal and such a pack rat that his behavior could have been a source of irritation and arguments. They said the bomb collar had been crudely made and was a mishmash of scrap materials that were likely collected over a period of time and could have been assembled years before the robbery. They were now offering a $50,000 reward for information leading to the person responsible for Brian's death. 
In February 2004, police released more information that had been contained in the instructions, hoping that someone would recognize the writing style. They felt it had taken a lot of planning over an extended period of time, and that more than money, revenge was the goal. They felt that the person who planned this had wanted to see their plan in action and would have been near the bank to watch it unfold. Meanwhile, Marge was moved to Mayview State Hospital for a psychic evaluation. At the end of July, Bill was on his deathbed, dying from cancer. Investigators questioned him again about Brian's death, but he would tell them nothing and died at the age of 60. A year after Brian's death, authorities were still stumped. The coroner said they determined there wasn't enough time to follow all the steps in the instructions and disarm the bomb before the 55-minute deadline. Authorities had determined that the bomb had been built in such a way that it was impossible to remove it without it going off. In January 2005, Marsh pled guilty, but mentally ill, to the charges of homicide and abuse of a corpse. In exchange for her plea, the charges for aggravated assault and tampering with evidence were dropped. She was sentenced to 7 to 20 years. She told the judge, I've learned my lesson. It's rather ironic that Marge's father, Harold, continued to grow old. In 2005, when he was 88, he wrote a new will. This time, he left Marge just $2,000. Two years after Brian's death, Authorities were still investigating, tracking down leads, and conducting interviews. They spoke with Marge in prison, and she admitted to killing James to silence him because he knew about their plan. They also talked to Floyd, who told them that Marge and Bill were involved in the bomb and bank robbery because they needed money, and that the three of them and Brian had met the day before the robbery to discuss their plans. In July 2007, Marge and Ken were charged with armed bank robbery, conspiracy to commit armed bank robbery, and using a destructive device in a crime of violence. Although Brian and Bill were named as co-conspirators, they were not charged after their deaths. Floyd was given immunity in exchange for testifying. Both Marge and Ken pled not guilty. Court records indicated that authorities believed Marge and Ken had written the instructions. In September 2008, Ken pled guilty to the conspiracy and destructive devices charges and was sentenced to 45 years in a federal prison. A judge had ruled that Marge was incompetent for trial, largely due to her bipolar disorder. In prison, she was sent for additional mental health exam and a year later was deemed competent. Her trial began in November 2010. The jury deliberated for two days before finding her guilty on all charges. She was sentenced to life in a federal prison, plus 30 years with no chance for parole. After her conviction and for testifying at her trial, a judge cut Ken's sentence in half. He would still serve another 17 years. Marge's father, Harold, died in 2012 at the age of 95. By the time his medical bills were paid, she didn't inherit a dime. Marge appealed her convictions and lost all of them. She died from cancer in 2017 at age 68. Ken also died in prison in 2019 at age 65. In an odd twist, after her death, 
a man named Mark Marvin, who had never met Marge in person, but had corresponded with her in prison, claimed he'd married her as a Quaker, and that he was entitled to her remains, and wished to take her body to New York State, to be buried in a Quaker cemetery close to him. The court denied him, he appealed and lost. Although he once said that he would dig her grave by hand and remove her remains, she still resides at the Cedar Hill Memorial Park in Arlington, Texas. In the end, Marge, Bill, Ken, and Brian all ended up dead and broke. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of William Scott Smith and the Hunt for a Serial Killer in Salem. Rebecca took a job working the graveyard ship and wasn't scheduled to work that night, but it switched shifts. It was a normal night, that is, until around 3.20 a.m. when William walked in. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe. Sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.